the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And passing along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ. Lord Christ. Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This evening we're going to consider two things, repentance and the nature of God's kingdom. I'd like to begin with a thought experiment that I hope might help us approach our gospel lesson, especially tonight, from a slant so that we can start to inhabit it a little more deeply than we're used to. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the parable that Christ told of the prodigal son. A man had two sons, and the younger one came to him and said, I want my share of the property. I know I'm supposed to get it when you're dead, but in terms of our relationship, you're dead to me. Give me my money, and I'll be on my way. And the father gives it to him, and off he goes to squander it all in what must have been an embarrassing fashion. And as Jesus tells the story, this younger son eventually finds himself doing terribly degrading work, and he's starving hungry. He's so destitute. And he finally comes to his senses and decides to return to his father. And if you know the story, you know that it ends with tears of joy, that the father rushes out to his wayward son and won't even let him choke out his rehearsed apology. He just immediately throws him a huge party. Imagine with me, though, that instead of the father being the first one to encounter the returning prodigal. Instead, it's his older brother. Do you think the prodigal would have made it past the front gate? Or would he see the condescending sneer of his self-righteous older brother and turn back around? Perhaps you've encountered just such a sneering older brother rather than the smiling father. Perhaps we have been the sneering older brother rather than a reflection of the smiling father. And I think this comes into focus for us when we hear the call 
that Christ gives in our gospel lesson this evening, to repent. Sometimes the way repentance gets explained, you almost have to strain to hear the good news part of the message. So before we get any further into our text this evening, I just want to say the call to repent is a call that emanates from a father who is going to tackle you with a bear hug because you have been away from home for too long. That's the call of repentance. To repent is to recognize that you have been stumbling away from home, and so you turn around and start going back the other way. This doesn't mean that repentance is easy. In fact, in some cases, it's extremely painful as an experience, but don't, don't miss the fact that Jesus' metaphor for his first disciples being fishers of men, right? Which means that we're the fish. We're the, we're the ones that got caught, and, and getting caught changes everything for the fish. So yes, sometimes repentance is a very painful thing, but ultimately it's born out of joy. Repentance always involves trust, because it is in part a recognition that you have put your trust in the wrong things. One of the words that we have for this misplaced trust is idolatry. We place trust and value in things, hoping that they will save us in some way. And in so doing, our sin, our journey back toward non-existence, clings ever closer to us. Repentance is a gift from God wherein we give him access to come and strip us of that sin that so easily entangles, to remove all of the death and the non-being from us. George MacDonald, in describing how Israel encountered the fire of God's wrath says this, God is against sin, and insofar as and while they, Israel, and sin are one, he is against them, against their desires, their aims, their fears, and their hopes, and thus he is always and altogether for them. He says that as God's grace begins to grow and as we begin to realize that evil, not the fire of God, is the fearful thing. The reason that repentance can be painful is because we have so identified ourselves with our sinful desire to live on our own terms rather than within the bounds of God's fatherly goodness. So again, McDonald says, the wrath will consume what they call themselves so that the selves God made shall appear. It's an identity shift. As I've said many times before, the drawing near of God's kingdom is only good news to those who are able to assess their own mud kingdoms honestly. But to those who insist on grasping power and control, the approach of God's kingdom is dismaying and enraging. In a world bent on power, instant results, and maximized efficiency, the manifesto of the divine kingdom that is given to us in Christ's Sermon on the Mount, specifically in the Beatitudes, reads like lunacy, if not something far more dangerous. Meekness, patience, humility, joy in the midst of persecution, these qualities are disconcerting to the powers that be because they reveal what Tolkien called a joy beyond the walls of the world. 
When you have joy from the outside, you can't be controlled by the system, right? And when Christianity is true to itself, it remains untainted and untempted by the world's offer of power. To degrade the message of God's kingdom by conflating it with nationalism or partisan politics is nothing short of blasphemy. And those who would trade on the glories of Christ's universal kingship for their own temporal power are wolves who have come hungrily amid the sheep, but they have not entered by the true gate. What we can see from Christ's teaching elsewhere in the Gospels is that the kingdom of God is about as explosive and flashy and powerful as a shrub. Watching it moment to moment, its change is nearly imperceptible, but over long stretches of time, its growth is magnificent. The kingdom begins as a tiny seed, unassuming and underwhelming, and as a seed dies and is buried in the earth before transforming into new life, so too are all who are in Christ brought through his death into newness of life through faith and baptism. Over the summer, we looked at several of the kingdom parables that Christ tells, and what we saw is that the kingdom is also messy. It's like a field filled with wheat and weeds interwoven with one another. You can't get one out without the other. The kingdom is valuable and surprising and worth obtaining like treasure hidden in a field. So how are we to understand ourselves as citizens of this kind of kingdom who practice repentance? The strangeness of our current moment is compounded by this simultaneous utter lack of virtue combined at the exact same time with moral panic. It's nuts. We're an immoral, unvirtuous population, and yet we're also gripped by moral panic that has not been seen for many decades. We live in a culture beset by the dangerous combination of arrogance and ignorance. We have failed to cultivate virtue, choosing instead to fan into forest fire level flames our passions of greed and self-righteousness and anger and lust and fear. And if anyone transgresses against the current moral code, a code which changes with dizzying rapidity, the Puritans on either side of our culture war will enact vengeance and punishment that makes the scarlet letter seem generous and light-handed. But in the midst of this, we have been given freedom to be people who seek truth, not as a weapon to wield against our ideological enemies, but as a healing medicine to work against our own self-deception. We have been given the freedom to be people of patience, recognizing that the kingdom of God grows within us like an oak tree, slow and steady. And our patience is rooted in our existence as people from the future. The Christ who approaches us in the sacraments is what the church has called for centuries, he who is. That is, he who dwells in life on the far side of death. This is the God that we encounter. 
So we no longer need to fill our days with frenetic frenzy because death no longer has the final say for us. We also have been set free to be people of humility, no longer sitting in judgment condemning others, but patiently tending the garden of our own soul. Humble people can admit when they're in the wrong because repentance has become a habit and divine love has become the atmosphere of their lives. We have the freedom to be people of joy and hope because the flux of earthly kingdoms does not devastate us. Our king has not conquered a people group who is different from us. He has conquered our only true enemy, death itself. If we allow God's peaceable kingdom to grow and live within us like yeast in the dough of our interior lives, we will become like salt that flavors and preserves the world around us. We will become like a lamp that is set on a stand, giving light to the whole room. We will become like a city set on a hill. May Christ make it so. Amen.